if you will, to the book of James. We'll be reading through James 1. The verses we'll be covering today are verses 9 through 11, but I think it would be good for our purposes to read from verse 2. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's ask for God's blessing as we open up these things. Heavenly Father, even as we heard preached this morning, to the teaching, to the testimony. It is to your word, Lord, that we turn for wisdom. It is to you that we turn, Lord, for um, all that we need in life. You are sufficient, and your word is sufficient for us. We pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit today as we open up and consider these verses, that you would make your, your meaning clear to us and apply it to our lives, that you would send your spirit on me and at the congregation who listens, Lord, that you would bless us and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. When you need to look up a word in the dictionary, I'm wondering how many of us here in this room actually go to the bookshelf and pick up a physical dictionary anymore. I'm guessing for the most part, it's easier for us now just to pull out our devices and to search it and we find the meaning that way. And one result in everyone turning to these online dictionaries is that these dictionaries are able to make regular updates. They change, uh, they add words, and they update meanings of words often. And I was reading that in 2017, Merriam-Webster Dictionary announced it was adding over 1,000 words to the dictionary. So if you have one of those hard copy dictionaries, there's a lot of words that are not in there. And among those words in 2017 that were added were binge watch, photobomb, and humblebrag. Humblebrag is a compound word. It's a verb, and it's defined by Merriam-Webster Dictionary as to make a seemingly modest, self-critical, or casual statement or reference that is meant to draw attention to one's admirable or impressive qualities or achievements. So you might see somebody on social media saying something like, oh, when I found out that I actually got two job offers on the same day, it was the worst. Or, my charity work is keeping me so busy. Or, I'm so honored to even be nominated for Employee of the Month. It's a shock every time this happens. So most of the time that people make a humble brag, they do it on social media because they want everyone to see it. And that's why it's so off-putting to us. They want the world to see 
in a really modest way just how amazing they are. But of course, the humble brag is only the most recent form of something that's been around forever, and that is boasting. Parents boast about their honor students on their cars, and kids boast about whose daddy is stronger. Um, even biblically, we read a lot about boastfulness in the Bible. First, we see how God condemns the prideful boaster, like in Psalm 5. We read that the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Yet what's surprising is that a lot of the time that the Bible talks about boasting, it does it in a positive light. It has this positive meaning that's sometimes translated as glorying or exulting. And in this sense, the Bible commends us. It tells us to boast, that we are to exult in God, glory in God, and yes, even to boast in God. Jeremiah 9.24 says, Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So as we consider these verses talking about boasting today, this is the type of boasting that James is speaking of. But before we dive too deep into what we're going to be talking about today, I think it would be good to recap some of what we've already covered in James 1. It's important to remember that there is an overarching theme at play here in the first 12 verses of James, and that is the theme of trials. And though the word trials can't be found anywhere in verses 3 through 11, these bookends of verse 2, which tells believers to count it all joy when they fall into trials, and then verse 12, when they're promised a blessing for remaining steadfast under those trials, it shows us that there's a bigger theme at work. And it's right, I think, to interpret all these verses in between under that heading of trials. So the question is, how do we interpret verses 9 through 11 that we're talking about today under the theme of trials? Well, I see these 12 verses as sort of a, a mini-sermon. There's almost a sermon outline here in front of us. He starts with this imperative. Count it all joy, he says, when you fall into trials. And he backs this up with some good sound theology. He encourages us to ask God when you need wisdom for those trials. And skipping ahead, we can see how he concludes with the promise of the crown of life for those who are steadfast under those trials. And so, what's missing from this sermon outline? Well, I would say that these are the applications. Verses 9 through 11, we have application, we have illustration here. James, as a gifted preacher, he knew how to take this theology and apply it to the specific lives of the people that he was writing to. Just like there are trials of various kinds, he was writing to people of various kinds. And so, very briefly, he applies and he illustrates this principle of the um, how to endure trials to two, two very different kinds of people, to the rich and to the lowly. Now, the extremes, the, the disparity that we see between the wealthy and the rich is as clear today as it was back then. Now, many of us live in the suburbs, we live in rural areas, and so maybe we don't see it as much, but if you drive into any city, it's right there before your eyes. Um, even in our little city of Albany, I was thinking about one of the times I was walking back to my car from the rescue mission after preaching to this group of, of people without very much at all. And as I'm getting back in my car, you have these sports cars zooming right down the road, right in front of this building that is full of people waiting in line at that very moment for a warm meal. Now, these social extremes existed maybe even more clearly in James's day because the middle class that so many of us have grown up in, it didn't exist back then like it does today. 
And so James, in these sermon applications, he opens up real-world examples of trials. He talks about the trial of the poor and the trial of the rich. So as we consider these two trials, let's consider the trial of the lowly brother first. Now, who is this lowly brother? The word that's translated lowly is used in the New Testament usually to describe humility, one who is humble. It's the same Greek word that Jesus uses when he describes himself as being gentle and lowly. And the literal meaning of the word lowly is one who doesn't rise far off the ground, one who is close to the dirt. And contrast, with, contrast this with those that the world holds up on a pedestal, these people who are at high on seats of power. This lonely man, he's figuratively and maybe even literally down in the dirt, close to the ground. As far as the world is concerned, the lowly man is insignificant. Very few people know who he is or what his name is. He's not going to be mentioned in history books. He's born, he lives his life without making a dent in the world. And then one day he passes away and maybe the world doesn't even notice. So the first way that we can really see the trial of this lowly brother is that because he's treated as insignificant, that he feels insignificant. He walks down the street and people pass by and they, they avert their eye, they don't look at him. He's regarded less as a part of society and more just a part of the background noise in the world around us. Consider even Lazarus from Jesus' parable. This, this man who in the parable sat at the gate of the rich man's home. And who knows how long he sat there in that condition. And as people went in the house and out of the house, they passed by Lazarus. And after a while, they didn't even notice him. He just got lost in the fray. He became a part of, of the filth of the street. And imagine the emotional distress that this would cause you to have if you were regarded as filth, to, to feel like you're less than human, to be invisible to the world. But what's even more important for us to note when we're considering the trial of the lowly brother here is that James calls this man the lowly brother. This man is a brother. He is a believer. And it's an important distinction to note that James isn't saying that every poor person in general is to boast the way that he's telling him to, but he's addressing poor and lowly Christians alone here. And we, we know, we know from real life, we know from the Bible that many of God's elect have been this type of poor and lowly person. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And we can be certain that heaven is going to be filled with people who lived their life on this earth as low and despised people. Even Jesus' earthly life, he wasn't marked by power or prestige or wealth, but by loneliness. He says that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When we think about uh, poor believers, we might also think about this woman who, who brought her two copper coins, and she put it happily into the offering box, and yet it was all that she had to live on. And you have to imagine that as Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that this picture he told of this man in such a miserable state, it wasn't such a foreign concept to them. These men were nodding along probably hearing this story because they knew what Jesus was talking about. 
And certainly many of the people that James was writing to here were this type of poor believer. Remember that he addresses them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. These were uh, Jewish Christians who had to flee from their homes, leave their jobs and all their money behind maybe, or else they'd be thrown in prison or killed by Saul. And not only were they rejected by the Jews because they were Christians, but even when they were safe distance from Jerusalem, they were even persecuted by the Gentiles for being Christians. Even though their lives might not have been in danger, they were passed up maybe for jobs because of who they were as followers of Christ and what they would do and wouldn't, wouldn't do as Christians. So that is the trial of the lowly brother. When we come to the rich man of verse 10, we come to one of the really first challenging passages in the book of James. And specifically, we need to look for the answer to the question here. Is the rich man of James 1.10 a brother? In verse 9, James specifically refers to the lowly man as a brother. But in verse 10, your translations probably either have just the rich man or even just the words, the rich. So, as you can imagine, this has been interpreted both ways historically and there are great commentators on both sides of this argument and they all back up their arguments with solid scripture so on the one hand you have the argument that this rich man is a brother that he is a christian and the original greek text here does seem to indicate that this might be the case and i i tried speaking through this without giving a, a visual and i i just thought it would be good for us to have the Greek in front of us. So in your, in your bulletins, there is a little chart you'll find at the bottom of the afternoon sermon notes. In the left-hand column there, you can see the original Greek, and it reads vertically here because that was the best way I could fit it in the page. But what you'll see as you look at the, the Greek and the English and the, and the types of words that are being used there, that there's only one verb, and it's the first word in the sentence. And if you know anything about Greek, they move the most important words of the Greek to the beginning of the sentence. And that is the verb, let him boast. And what you'll see is that verb is not repeated in verse 10. But if we're going to make sense out of the words, the rich one in his low position, we need to copy that verb over. And it makes sense because of the parallels here to copy that word, let him boast, over to the meaning of verse 10. And nobody really debates this point on either side. But people who, who say that this, this rich man is a brother argue that the most straightforward reading of these verses shows a parallel, not just in the verb, let him boast, but also in the subject, the brother. Just as the verb, let him boast, is implied for both the wealthy and the lowly man, so is the subject, a lowly brother and a wealthy brother. So if you read it this way, you might even read it as, let him boast, the brother, the poor one in his high position, the rich one in his low position. Or to give you another example, uh, imagine there's a boy and he's visiting his grandmother and on his way out, the grandmother hands him three lollipops, a cherry one, a strawberry one, and a watermelon. And this boy, Jimmy, picks out the strawberry one for himself and grandma says, okay, bring the other two home. I want you to give the cherry lollipop to your brother and the watermelon to your sister. Now, Grandma didn't actually repeat the words give or lollipop in her direction. But it's understood from what she was saying that she does want Jimmy to give something to his sister and that the thing that she wants him to give is not an actual watermelon, 
but a watermelon lollipop. She doesn't need to repeat the word lollipop any more than she needs to repeat the word to give it. But even though the language seems to indicate this interpretation, there is still room, even in the Greek, to interpret it differently. So on the other side, we have some who argue that this rich man of James 1 is an unbeliever and that James purposefully leaves out this word brother. And they, they point to two other passages in James to back up this argument. And you can flip over quickly to see these. The first one is in James 2, 6. In both of these passages, the rich are referred to in a very negative way. James says in verse 6 of chapter 2, speaking to the rich, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Then flip over to James 5, verse 1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So those who argue that the rich man here is an unbeliever point to James as having this singular view of the rich as the oppressors of the church. And certainly, oppressors, that type of behavior is not reflective of, of regenerated hearts of believers. So which interpretation is right? We've got good, godly, biblical evidence on both sides and commentators on both sides. So it's tempting when we come to this passage to throw up your hands and say, well, if they can't figure out, how am I supposed to do it? But in the end, if we're going to apply this passage to our lives, we do need to land on one side or the other. Now I'm going to give my position, humbly acknowledging my intellectual weakness and my very limited experience with this. Uh, there, are much there are people who are much wiser and more skilled than I am who say otherwise. But in my opinion, when you look at the biblical evidence on both sides, I feel that the scales tip more to the view that the rich man in James 1 is a believer, that he is a Christian. And why do, why do I believe that? First of all, because what I've already gone through, that the plain meaning of the text, the parallels that we see in the Greek there point to that. And it would take significant biblical evidence for me to read and interpret it differently than the plain meaning of the text seems to say. Secondly, if we're going to interpret this rich man here as an unbeliever, it requires us to read this verse with a heavy dose of sarcasm because the, the rich man is told to boast in his humiliation. And the humiliation of the rich unbeliever is ultimately his condemnation. It's his eternal judgment and damnation. And so to read that a rich man should boast in such a terrible judgment is to read a lot of sarcasm that isn't clearly there in the text. You see, in James 5, when he does speak of the condemnation of the rich, he does it in straightforward words. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He doesn't say glory and boast for the miseries that are coming upon you. And there's no indication that we should read any sarcasm in James 1.10. Another reason is we need to be careful about issuing blanket statements for people groups, even to people with wealth. Even in those days, and James probably knew some of these people, there were rich believers, people who were sincere believers of Christ, who had wealth, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Lydia. And I'm sure there were plenty of rich people that James knew who were wicked, who were oppressive, but I don't believe that he had this singular view that every wealthy person is an oppressor or wicked. It sounds a lot like what we call in our day critical race theory. And 
I'm not going to get too, as deep into this as I, as I wanted to, but it's the idea that all people can be divided into two people groups. There's the oppressed, there's the oppressors. And depending on things like your race and your gender, your wealth and other things, you're put into one of these two groups. You're an oppressor or you're the oppressed. And critical race theory does make these big blanket statements, condemning these groups that are considered to be oppressors. For our purposes today, it's enough to say that I don't think that James had a singular view of the rich, that his condemnation of these specific rich people who oppressed the church in James 2 and James 5 doesn't mean that he felt that all rich people were wicked. And my final reason to understand this rich man here as a believer is that it seems to fit best with the context of this passage. Remember, we're talking about trials here. And James is giving two examples of how we are to deal with our trials, how we can endure that testing of our faith. And if this rich man is an unbeliever, it doesn't seem to fit with the context. For the rich unbeliever, he doesn't see his riches as a trial. They're his greatest pleasure. It's what he delights in. But if we interpret it that the rich man here is a believer, the nature of his trial comes through clearly in the text. And that trial of the rich believer are the riches themselves. Or maybe it's better to say that the trial of the rich is their heart attitude towards those riches. Now, think with me about some of the other rich believers that we read about in the Bible. Men like Solomon or Abraham or like Job. In 2024, these were very rich men. And in 2024, we would call these men the one percenters. They're the, they're the top of the top. Abraham basically had his own army. But what we can see from the lives of these men is that their hearts were not set on these material things. They didn't trust in their riches. They didn't boast in their wealth. But they displayed a consistent love and trust towards God. So for a believer, having this type of wealth and power at your disposal has the potential of actually being, it's a blessing, but it has the potential of being one of your greatest trials, a test of your faith. And this idea flows really naturally out of what we talked about last time. We went through James 1.8, where we read about this double-minded man, this man who is said to have two souls. He's trying to be two people at once, he calls himself a Christian, and yet we can see from his life that his heart is actually devoted to his true master of money. Remember what the Lord said in Luke 16, that no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Having this type of wealth can be a, a fatal danger to the wealthy believer. And James warns these rich those that have many material goods, to check their hearts. And ask you to turn over to the Gospel of Mark with me. Chapter 10, Mark 10. We're going to read starting at verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, Mark says, As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not be defraud, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We're going to pause and finish reading this in a moment. I don't pretend to know the spiritual condition of this rich young man, but I think it's safe to say that at the very least that here is somebody who is at least in danger of being that double-minded man of James 1.8. He considered himself to be a godly man, somebody who kept the law, who wanted it and was seeking after eternal life. Yet when Christ told him that he had to sell all that he had, his unstable, his double-minded heart was exposed. If true believers are to endure the trial of their riches, they need to check themselves and put themselves in the place of this rich young man and think about how is it that we view money? How tightly do we hold on to our wealth? How is it that we view ourselves in light of what we have? I was reading about a London newspaper that offered a prize for whoever gave the best definition of money. And the winning entry was this. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Well, the temptation to boast in our wealth is a danger, even for even for pastors who are blessed with money. This is something that we see a lot in our day. Have you heard of this man whose name is Ben Kirby? If you haven't, maybe you've heard of his social media page. It's called Preachers and Sneakers. And on this page, Ben Kirby posts pictures of these pastors of megachurches. And they're up there in their outfits and their designer sneakers they're wearing. And he posts these pictures of the sneakers they're wearing, and right next to it, he posts a picture of an online store where you can see the price of these sneakers. And what's shocking to see is that these sneakers many times don't cost in the hundreds of dollars, but in the thousands of dollars that they're wearing. And they're, and they're purposefully wearing these things and putting them up on a stage, showing and boasting in their wealth. Thousands of dollars for shoes. And I don't completely agree with the way that Ben Kirby goes about the, the, the shaming of these pastors. I think he could do it with a little more grace, maybe. And he's certainly cashing in on it. Uh, but what he has exposed is that this trial of loving money and boasting in our riches is a clear and present danger even in church, even in church leadership. Well, another part of the trial of the rich is the temptation to forget where these riches come from to forget the source of our blessings. There's a phrase that we hear thrown around today where somebody says that they are independently wealthy. And it's the idea of somebody who's reached that point in their life where they don't have to depend on anything except for themselves for their finances. But Christians need to remember that nobody, nobody is independently wealthy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
apparently Paul was writing to some in Corinth, who were feeling pretty good about what they had, about who they were. They're sitting back in their houses and looking at all they had and counting their servants, and they put themselves in the seats of honor at dinner time, and they think, look at what I've achieved. Look what I've done for myself. Look what I've built with my own two hands. They forget the source of their blessings. What these independently, supposedly independently wealthy people need to remember is that they are 100% dependently wealthy. Look at Job, who in a blink, he lost all that he had, his home, his family, his wealth. And yet he confessed and he blessed God that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We have nothing that was not given to us. And how quickly we can forget this when we have things. When someone forgets the source of his blessings, eventually he's going to stop trusting in God. He's going to start to put his trust in himself. He's going to start to put his trust in his money and his riches. This is why Jesus taught here in Mark 10 that it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We're going to keep on reading where we left off in verse 23 of Mark 10. This is after the rich man has wandered off. Jesus looked around. He said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The Puritan Thomas Manton said that it is not the having, but the trusting. Riches in the having and the bare possession are not a hindrance to Christianity, but in our abuse of them. End quote. Well, whether we are rich or whether we have very little in this life, we need to acknowledge that what we do have has been given to us by God. We all need to acknowledge our complete dependence upon God. And yet this is a lesson that is harder to remember when you're surrounded by material goods. We need to be warned of this so we don't turn out to be like the church of Laodicea that we read of in Revelation 3. We read in Revelation 3.17, speaking of this church, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So this Christian who has been blessed with wealth needs to acknowledge that his riches come from God and his heart needs to be set not on the wealth that he's been blessed with, but on the God who gave it to him. Well, let's move on to consider the boasts, the boast of the lowly and the boast of the rich. In verse 9 we read, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. As James opened up this this subject of trials, he presents a paradox that we are to rejoice in our trials. And now he's presenting another paradox. He tells these pitiful, lowly brothers to boast. You can imagine them reading this and going, what are you talking about? I have nothing to boast in. The rich ones, they're the ones who have all the reason to boast, not me. But this commandment is not given to the lowly person in general but is given to the lowly brother specifically. 
It's wrong for us to think that every single person who is poor is somehow elevated to a higher spiritual level because of that poverty. We don't want to be like the monks of the early church. There were some of these monks who felt that by the act of depriving themselves from all worldly good, from all comfort, that they would reach a higher spiritual echelon than the rest of the world. Yet the monks, these, these guys had it all backwards. We're not to seek these things out and purposefully put ourselves in harm's way. But the lowly are not to boast in their low position. The lowly brother is to boast in his high position, in his exaltation. The reason that this lowly brother can boast is not because he is poor, it's because he is a brother. It seems to this poor Christian like maybe life is always knocking him down, that he's close to the ground, he's in the dirt, but things are not as they seem. In reality, because of who he is, because of his spiritual identity as a brother, he is exalted. It seems to the world like he is despised, but in reality, this man is cherished. And he, may be, he might appear to be forgotten, but he is a heavenly father who knows him and whose gaze never leaves him. And what's more, this lowly Christian is not only a brother, but he is a son. He is an adopted son of the Most High God. And as a son, he enjoys all the privileges of adoption. And you know in the 12th chapter of our London Confession, we have all of these privileges laid out for us. Some of them are that he has God's name put on him. He can call himself a Christian. He receives the spirit of adoption. He has access to the throne of grace with boldness. And he is enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. And you can read many more of these privileges in the confession. If this brother were to measure his worth by what he owns, it's going to drive him to despair. Gordon Cuddy said that riches can be as deceitful when we don't have them and we want them as when we have them in abundance. It's not just the rich man who is in danger of viewing himself in view of what he has or what he doesn't have. And this is why James has to give this imperative. This is why he gives this commandment to the lowly brother. It's like he says, I know that you're tempted to despair in your helplessness, but you need to boast for what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. I know that you are hungry, but remember, remember that the Lord of hosts is preparing a feast of rich food for you, Isaiah 25. I know that you are thirsty, but remember that God gives you a spring of water welling up to eternal life, John 4. And I know that you are dressed in rags, but God dresses you in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation 19. Imagine a boy and his friend who decide to enter their pumpkins into the county fair. And one day in the late summer, after the pumpkins were starting to get big, they call each other up on the phone, and the friend says, well, I just brought my mom's measuring tape outside to the garden, and I wrapped it around. You'll never guess how big my pumpkin is. The measuring tape said 100. So this other boy, not wanting to be outdone, he grabs his mom's measuring tape and he runs out to the garden and he wraps it around his pumpkin. But when he looks at the number there next to his thumb, to his dismay, it says 78. He sadly walks back into the house. He tells his friend, well, you're probably going to win the ribbon. My pumpkin's not even close to being as big as yours. A couple of weeks later, they show up at the county fair and they unload their pumpkins out of the trucks. And this boy who was so sad that his pumpkin wouldn't win is shocked to find that he wins the blue ribbon. 
because his pumpkin is actually twice the size of this other boy's pumpkin. You see, his friend was using a metric measuring tape when he was measuring his, his pumpkin. He was measuring in centimeters, while his own pumpkin he was measuring in inches. This whole time that he thought that he had the smaller pumpkin, it was because he was measuring by the wrong standard. It's not a perfect illustration, but I hope you get the point that when this lowly brother is tempted to despair because it seems like he has nothing to boast in, he is measuring himself by the world's standard. But if he were to measure himself by his worth as a child of God, he would see that he has every reason to boast. We also need to see how the poor, lowly brother needs to remember that these sufferings that he does endure are temporary. And Spurgeon gave a great illustration. He says, Sometimes when our friends go to Liverpool to sail for Canada or any other distant region, on the night before they sail, they get into a very poor lodging. I think I hear one of them grumbling, saying, What a hard bed! What a small room! What a bad view! Never mind, says the other. We're not going to live here. We're off tomorrow. Think in like manner, says Spurgeon, you children of poverty. This is not your rest. Put up with it. You are away tomorrow. The journey begins tomorrow. Well, this brother of humble circumstances, this lowly brother, has another reason to boast. He can boast of the honor that he has to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Think about the apostles in Acts 5, those who were beaten and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. We read that when they let them go and they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Christ. And this was the case for a lot of the, the lowly brothers that James was writing to. The reason that they were in this low condition is because they were Christians who suffer for righteousness' sake and to boast that they are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So even though it seems like this lowly believer who seems to have the least amount to boast about, he actually has the most to boast about. He is a brother in Christ. He is an adopted son of God. He is a child of the king. And that is a, a hymn that we have in our hymnals. It's hymn 720, and one of the verses says, A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing, all glory to God, I'm a child of the king. Well, let's move on to the boast of the rich. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. As we turn to this boast of the rich, I'll remind you again of the parallels that we have in these verses. The exaltation of the poor, this high position that he can boast of, is not on a physical or material basis, but it was on a spiritual basis. And likewise, when we talk about the rich believer, his humiliation, his, his low position, we need to understand this on a spiritual basis too. And this is what's really key to understanding all of this text here and, and this paradox that we have in front of us, that the lowly one boasts of his high position and the high one boasts of his low position, that regardless of whether you are poor, whether you are rich, if there is anything that you have to boast in, it is not in what you have, but in what you are in Jesus Christ. This is for the Christian. 
whether you are rich, whether you are poor, what you have to boast in is not in what you have, but in what you are in Christ. Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It seems that the more rich somebody is, the more we're drawn to them. At least our culture is drawn to them. We see that these politicians and celebrities are put up on pedestals and we care so much about what they think. All the kids have to have this kind of water bottle because that celebrity is drinking from that kind of water bottle. It matters so much to us. And these celebrities are surrounded often by an entourage of these doting fans who are speaking sweet words to them and telling them how great they are. But put yourself in the place of one of these rich and powerful people. What must it be like to constantly have people telling you how great you are? To wake up in the morning and make a tweet and then have it reach millions of views and go viral before you even finish your morning coffee that day? What must it be like to see how highly the world thinks of you? It's got to be tempting to actually start believing it, to start thinking pretty highly of yourself. But James is reminding this rich brother here that your worth is not in what you own, but your worth is in what you are in Christ. And what you are as a rich brother in Christ is no different than what this other man is as a lowly brother in Christ, that all are equal at the foot of the cross. Boast in this, James says, that in Christ, you are not what the world says you are, but you're no different or no better than the lowest of low who are also in Christ. In Christ, you are brothers. You are equals. Just as that poor Christian needs to forget all of his earthly poverty, this wealthy Christian needs to forget all of his earthly wealth. The world may continue to evaluate the rich believer based on what he has, but the one who boasts in his humility has discovered something of an incomparably greater value than his wealth. He's discovered something that makes him and all that he has, all his wealth and power, all those things feel small. And maybe he used to boast in his riches, but now he's discovered something else, something that makes that kind of boasting seem foolish and petty. So the humiliation of this rich brother is ultimately a humbling of his heart. It is a, a low mind in a high person. It's that same recognition of Job that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's a, a meekness of heart and one who maybe outwardly is very powerful. And it's a poorness in spirit of one who has been blessed with many earthly riches. Blessed are the poor in the spirit, the Lord says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think there are many rich brothers who are poor in spirit. But as we saw earlier, keeping this type of perspective is extremely difficult. It's a trial when you're surrounded by your riches. This is the trial of the rich brother. And we shouldn't think that is a smaller trial. Maybe it seems like it at first, that there's the lowly man who has the greater trial. But this trial of the rich is no small thing. There's much at stake. And so James goes on to provide an illustration, a humbling reminder to this man why they should not boast in what they have, but they should boast in their humiliation. 
In James 1, the second half of verse 10, he says, speaking of this rich man, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I think a lot of times when we think about Palestine, we try to picture where Jesus was walking and where these events happened. We imagine this barren desert. But actually in Palestine and in Israel, there is a spring in which there are a lot of wildflowers that would bloom in the fields there. Think about when Jesus mentions the lilies of the field. People weren't scratching their heads saying, what's this guy talking about? They, they knew what the flowers looked like when they bloomed. Maybe there were even flowers there that day. However, these spring blooms were very short-lived. The Israelites knew that there was a very narrow window. If they wanted to get out and see the flowers and all their beauty, they had only a, a day or two to get out there and to see it. Because without the rains to sustain them, the wind and the sun would dry these flowers out. I think for us, we don't live in a desert, but the closest that we can come to understanding this is in the fall foliage. We use that term peak foliage to talk about those one or two days of the year when the colors of the leaves just pop, they dazzle, right? And people drive for hours to see them. And even for those of us who grew up seeing them, it seems every fall we're still shocked. We're caught up in the awe of God's beauty and creation as we see that peak foliage. But you know as well as I do that if you blink, you miss it. This last year, I was waiting for that peak foliage and I just guess wasn't, I wasn't looking on the day where it happened and then it was gone. What was once this beautiful spectacle of oranges and yellows and reds can transform into a forest of brown and gray trees. They've got these gangly-looking limbs all of a sudden. Without their leaves, we can see the, the ugly knots in the burls. So we can see the places where the bark is peeled away and the, the ugliness of some of these trees. And this is the warning that James is giving to the rich here. That yes, you may be dazzling now. People care about what you think. Your riches and powerful make you beautiful to the world. But just as these beautiful petals of the wildflowers are going to dry up, leaving behind a field of empty stalks, these things that are making you beautiful to the world now, they're temporary. They're passing away like the flowers of the field. And this Greek word that's translated pass away, it means to, to pass out of, of use, to go out of existence. Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's the idea that there's something here one minute and then it's gone. And that's our earthly life, James says. Here one minute and then it's gone as quickly as the peak fall foliage. And of course, this is a, a truth of human nature and it applies to, to all of us, not just to the wealthy men. We all need this reminder that things are temporary. Isaiah 40, we read almost the same words in, in, in uh, verse 6 of Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. All flesh is grass. All earthly gain, all earthly loss, all earthly want, these things are temporary. And it's true for the poor, and it's true for the rich alike. But James here is directing this application to the rich specifically. 
And again, that's because he's the one who's more likely to forget it. The poor man is much more likely to have his eyes set on his future deliverance from this poverty. But the rich man is more likely to boast in this momentary beauty that he's been given. If all of his energy is bent on these riches, on keeping them and adding to them, and he's glorying in them, he needs to be reminded and shaken and said, hey, you are grass. If God has blessed you with a flower in this lifetime, yeah, praise him for it. It's a great blessing. But don't put your praise and trust into something that is fading away, that is temporary. It's like kids at the beach. Imagine a family takes their vaca- uh, vacation to a beach house and the kids decide they want to surprise their parents. And so they take their buckets and their shovels and they go down a little ways in the beach and they start building a sandcastle. And they get the sand just wet enough that it holds its shape and they're so careful to take it off that so none of the corners are crumbling around the edges and they put a little stick in each of them and decorate it with shells and they dig a moat and they stand back and it's perfect, perfect sandcastle. They run back to the beach house, they grab their parents, they bring them back, and it's a, it's a pile of sand and sticks and shells because the tide came in and it washed it away. Or maybe you've been to Saranac Lake. I was uh, seeing just a couple days ago a, a, a post uh, from Saranac Lake where they're building the ice palace. And if you've been up there in the winter, you know that this is a tradition that they have of harvesting these huge blocks of ice off the lake. I was reading that each one of them can weigh as much as 400 pounds and that they use from 1,000 to 4,000 of these massive ice blocks to build this ice palace right in the center of their town. And if you've ever gone to see it, you know how impressive it is to walk around inside this ice palace. But I can't help to think how devastated these local artisans must be when an unexpected thaw comes in in the middle of January or February and it starts raining, and they can do nothing but stand there and watch this beautiful ice palace melt in front of them. All the time they put into it, the numbness of their fingers, their achy backs, all of it is for nothing. Now personally, I really enjoy seeing these ice palaces and sandcastles. I admire the beauty of this kind of art. When it's snowing and the snow is just right, I love making snowmen with my kids. I know they're not gonna last forever. But it's one thing to delight and see the beauty in these things. But it's so foolish to put your trust in them. A rich man who's preoccupied with his riches, he's putting his trust into a sandcastle. And even a poor man, a poor lowly Christian who thinks that what he needs to find happiness is money, he's chasing after an ice palace. These things don't last. The rich man's going to be going about his business one day, it says. And poof, his earthly life is going to be over. And suddenly, his riches aren't going to matter one bit. So you can see how this illustration really brings it home. The importance of the rich man boasting in his humiliation. James is telling this rich brother here, humble yourself. Boast in your humiliation. But he has a different directive to the rich man who doesn't humble himself. Remember the words of James 5. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, if this rich man does not humble himself voluntarily, he is going to be humbled anyway. Well, how do we apply this passage to our lives? How do we take exhortations that are made 
to the rich and to the poor and apply them to our church, which is predominantly middle class? Well, first we need to remember to be careful in how we measure ourselves. That when we're using our measuring tapes, that we're not measuring ourselves with a material standard, but with a measuring tape of a spiritual standard. That when we're tempted to despair because of what we don't have, because of what we lack, we need to remember that our, our value of, as children of God, we need to remember the price of our adoption was nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. What a high value, what a high position the brother has. And when we're tempted to boast in our riches, to put our trust in our material things, these things that we've all been blessed with, we need to remember that these things are passing away, every one of them. And to put our trust in them is to put our trust into a flower that blooms for a day, in a sandcastle or an ice palace. For the rich believer, the poor believer, even the 21st century middle class believer, James wants us to look beyond these temporary things and focus our eyes, to focus on our hearts, on true, eternal, spiritual treasures. We need to remember that our worth is only found, this high worth that we have as believers is only found in the blood of Christ. That the only reason that we have to boast is that we know him as our Savior. So for those who have not trusted in Christ as Savior, remember that there's two distinct categories of people in the Bible. And it's not the rich and the poor. It's not the oppressed and the oppressors. It's the redeemed and the lost. Suffering in this life doesn't mean that you're going to be exempt from suffering in the next. And material blessing in this life doesn't mean that you're going to be guaranteed spiritual blessing in the next. Regardless of how much or how little you have in this life, God offers spiritual treasure to any who would have it. And it's not a treasure that we need to work for, not a treasure that we need to earn and save up, but it's a treasure that God gives us freely to people who don't even deserve it. It's not an inheritance of material goods that are going to decay, but it's an inheritance which is imperishable. And it is not an inheritance whose beauty only lasts for a season, but it is an inheritance which does not fade away. And it is not an inheritance which is locked up in a vault or a safety deposit box somewhere, but it is reserved and laid up for us in heaven. So may it be that God would give us all the grace to receive these riches and to boast in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we are considering these things, that you would help us, Lord, to look beyond the temporary here and now, the great blessings, yes, that you've given to us that are fading away. They are not what define us. They're not what separate us, Lord. But if we have any reason to boast, we pray, Lord, it would be to boast in your Son, Jesus Christ, to boast in the spilt blood of the cross. We pray, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts. You would give us hearts that do not despair for what we don't have and hearts that do not boast in what we do have, Lord, but hearts that view ourselves in light of who we are in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would 
apply this to our lives and grow us in the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.